Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices to the Gospel according to Luke, and we're going to be giving our attention to Luke chapter 1, uh, specifically verses 68 through 75. Back in Back in October, I had the joy of hearing my all-time favorite band, Tower of Power, live in concert. It was the sixth time I had seen them in person, and for you unfortunate souls who have never heard of them, the Tower of Power band was originally formed in 1968, and uh, their popularity probably reached its zenith in the 70s, but, but now for more than 50 years, they have perfected their musical craft, and at this, this point in time, they're, they're simply one of the best at what they do, that being funk fusion soul music. And I, I still remember the first time Laurie and I heard them live at the Dakota Jazz Club in Minneapolis, small club, loud band, we were like 30 feet away from the brass section. It was, it was electrifying, and people sang, and people danced, and people raised their hands. Couples held hands. Strangers became friends. Uh, it was a worship celebration where fans of soul music could glory and exult in the pleasure of the talent, the skill, the sound, the familiarity of the songs that took us places and to times and <laughs> feelings that made our hearts sing. And it is for that same reason that Luke packs the first two chapters of his gospel with songs. Songs for the Savior. Luke means to show that the mystery of God become man is supremely engaging. We praise what we enjoy. Our hearts feel pleasure in what we treasure. And so Luke opens a window. He opens a window through four songs to show us pleasure and to give us a taste of divine treasure. And he does so in order that we might exult in the supreme treasure of God visiting his people in the person of his son, Jesus. Now, the the second song on Luke's playlist is truly amazing. It rises from the heart and is expressed by the voice of a priest, a, a pastor, as it were, named Zechariah. And it comes pouring out at the occasion of the birth of his own son, John, a child who one day would be known as John the Baptist. This song historically has been entitled Benedictus, like Magnificat, that's the title to the song that Mary sings that Matt preached two weeks ago. Benedictus is another Latin word and it means blessing. Zechariah's song got that title since it begins with the words Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And Benedictus begins at verse 68 and ends technically with verse 75. The the song actually extends through verse 79, but 
but 79, verses 76 through 79 are kind of a riff uh, directed specifically to Zechariah's baby boy, John. Those of you fathers who are holding your sons this morning, you know, you know what that's like. It's, there's times to riff on praising your son. So, Zach cannot contain the joy of which the Holy Spirit has filled him. The Holy Spirit falls on him and out comes a song. Out comes a song, a song of praise to God, his Savior. And so, if you're able, I would invite you to please stand with me uh, out of respect for God's word and Please follow along as I read Luke chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 75, and we will read through verse 75. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The song is inspired by God and is for the strength and the joy and the obedience of our faith. Let's pray together. And so we ask, O oh God, that in the name of the Lord Jesus and through the empowering, illuminating work of your Holy Spirit, you would do just that. You'd strengthen our faith in you and that you would increase our joy in you and you would cause us to will and to act according to your good purpose in such a way that we obey you. We trust and obey you for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I believe that the focus of this song, Benedictus, is, is faith. The focus of this song is specifically God glorifying faith. And through this song as well as the, the, the narrative that surrounds it, Luke provides us with a, a remarkably clear picture of the nature of God-glorifying faith. Secondly, the ground of God-glorifying faith. And thirdly, the function of God-glorifying faith. That's what we're going to look at. The nature of God-glorifying faith, the ground of God-glorifying faith, and the function of God-glorifying faith. So, here we go. The nature of God glorifying faith. The reason that I'm persuaded that Luke means to draw our attention to 
to God-glorifying faith is the surprising use of the verb tense in Zechariah's song. Look again at verses 68 and 69. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. You see see the use of those past tense verbs. He has visited. He has redeemed. He has raised up a horn of salvation. He has? Literally? Well, no, not yet. That's the thing. He's going to, he will, but not yet. And and that should get our attention. And what, what should be even more striking is that just nine months earlier, Zechariah could not believe his wife would have a child. But now, filled with the Holy Spirit, he is so confident, so sure of God's redeeming work and the coming Messiah that he sings of it as if it had already happened. That, that, that is an expression of a mind and of a heart of God-glorifying faith. And it is instructive for us then to back up and trace Zechariah's journey of faith. So turn back a few verses now to Luke chapter 1. Verses 5 and 6, where Luke writes, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So, the the first thing that Luke points to is evidence of the grace of Zechariah's saving faith. Zechariah and Elizabeth both came from this priestly line of Aaron, meaning that they were both active to some degree in ministry. I can imagine them... (laughs) I can imagine them as an aging pastor and wife. But more importantly, Luke says that they were counted righteous before God. Now, to be clear, it's not the priestly line that saves them. It is not the ministry that saves them. Nor does it mean that it is their Faith that saves them. Faith is not what saves. Only the death of Jesus saves. Faith is not what cancels the debt for our sins. Only the death of Jesus cancels the debt for our sins. And only entrusting ourselves and relying upon Jesus' sin, atoning death through faith is what appropriates to us the gift The astonishing gift of being counted righteous before God. We know that because of Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, where Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for all who have sinned, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, Zechariah's faith journey begins with his own record of sin canceled and a record of holy perfection credited to him by virtue of his dependence upon a sin-atoning sacrifice. His righteousness is achieved through the death of another. But the nature of God-glorifying faith is also and is always a tested faith. In Luke chapter 1 verse 7, it says, But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Only those who have endured the pain associated with fertility issues or miscarriage or childlessness can fully appreciate the test of faith. Luke chapter 1 verse 7 represents. There are layers, layers of grief and shame and embarrassment and all the accompanying insecurities. I'm sure that I'm sure that is at least part of the reason that that Luke chapter 1 verses 24 and 25 says that after Elizabeth finally did conceive, she kept herself hidden for five months. And then she says in Luke 1 25, the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. So, the ability or the lack of ability to conceive is, that's, that is a, that's a major test to one's confidence in God's grace. It's a major test to one's confidence and one's satisfaction in God's goodness. And, and so r- right here, it, I think it's fitting to register how remarkably common it is for professing Christians to believe that once we're in Christ, once we're joined to Jesus, well, then, you know, we, we expect everything will go well, as we want, when we want, and any obstacle to the fulfillment of our desires then tempts us to feel like you know, e- either God's aloof or angry and therefore sus- to be suspected. You know, it, w- w- he can't really fully be trusted. But Jesus promised in John 16, in, in the world you will have trouble. 
And so one's confidence in God's goodness must be grounded in something other than a problem-free life. We'll come back to that in a moment. For now, if you've never had to endure a major gut-wrenching, back-breaking test to your faith, thank God. But God-glorifying faith is it's a lot deeper than trusting Him when all is smooth sailing. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, so a, a tested faith actually confirms faith. Tested faith strengthens faith. Tested faith trains us for godliness. La last weekend, we celebrated the 10th anniversary of Emmaus Road Church, and uh, I took a little time to read my journals from back in the day, the early days, and it, it's, it's no surprise that, that one distinguishing characteristic just stands out of those who, those who persisted, per persevered together since 2013. One of the distinguishing marks is some measure of significant suffering. Financial suffering, physical suffering, vocational suffering, relational suffering, transition emotion suffering. Just a, just a whole lot of headaches, heartaches, and hallelujahs. And, and one of the burdens which... I guess one bears uniquely as a founding planting pastor, it was the anxiety over whether or not Emmaus Road Church would endure. <laughs> I, I so remember people describing us as tender and fragile. I mean, those first two years, we, we were tender and fragile. A tender, fragile shoot of a new church. Would we endure when it seemed that every Buddy and that launch team was like one step away from disaster. But that's when, you see, that's, that's when James chapter 1 verses 2 to 3 gets traction. The very thing, the very things that we fear could undo us and cause us to fail to endure, namely trials and hard stuff, are the very things that God has purposefully designed to produce the very steadfastness and endurance that we seek. It, it remains my conviction that those who have endured hard things, those who have fallen, those who have failed at some point in their lives, potentially they are the ones who connect most deeply and dynamically into God's kingship and comfort because it's the meek who will inherit the earth. It's the ones who have been schooled by heartache, heartbreak, and loss. 
and who can boast in their weaknesses and utter dependence upon God who will ultimately have the most influence. And, and so it's the, it's the singing Zechariah of Luke chapter 1 verses 69 to 75 that knows this full well since he is also the unbelieving Zechariah of Luke chapter 1 verses 8 to 23. The righteous and god Fearing Zechariah, you know, he's just doing his his priestly thing when one day he he meets an angel in the sanctuary. And this may come as a shock to you that a pastoral leader, one counted righteous before God, could have lapsed so far in his reliance upon God, that while interceding in the presence of God, he's totally caught off guard by an honest-to-goodness encounter with God. God showed up. (sighs) And when the angel says, calm down, I am here to tell you that even though you've been in this spiritual valley... God is full of grace. And your prayers and your longings will be answered. And Elizabeth will get pregnant. And not only will you have a baby, he will be the fulfillment of prophecies made centuries ago. He will prepare the way for the Messiah. And then, to our surprise, Luke records for all generations the demise of Zechariah's faith to a flaming arrow of unbelief. It's not his bright shining moment. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. Loved ones, listen, this is such a such an encouraging thing. Even our moments or seasons of lapsed faith are an occasion for the glory of the Lord. If it drives us deeper into the nearness of God. That's why Zechariah's song, I I think for for me it, it just feels so powerful. An old man whose lifelong fight for faith, shaped by the painful engraving tool of barrenness, both physically and spiritually, it was ma- he was made for this moment. Zechariah's crooked journey, characterized by a flawed faith. This is an epic poem that God had written for 
Him, specifically, before he was born in this providential journey was meant by God to prepare Zechariah to sing this song with full assurance, with this past tense verbs, as though the mystery of God become man had already happened. I've heard it said, for the mind of faith, a promised act of God is as good as done. The picture Scripture provides of the nature of God-glorifying faith is, well, it's anything but perfect and flawless. And that's because because the opposite of God-glorifying faith is not weak faith. There will be inevitable and, and God-ordained dips and drops and twists and turns. Rather, the opposite of God-glorifying faith is, is a shallow faith that fails to persevere. And so, in the end, Zechariah's faith glorifies God, and its magnifying effect is only heightened. It's only heightened on account of his lapse. (laughs) Since it shows that God's power is magnified in supplying what was needed when he was weak. The very reason that faith glorifies God is because it excludes boasting And it reveals that we're the ones who are needy and dependent. And therefore, the ground or the foundation of God-glorifying faith, it does not reside within us. Where does it reside? Well, let's look at the ground of God-glorifying faith. God's glory... We need to be clear about this. God's glory is not exalted by how much faith we can muster. God's glory is exalted when the one trusting depends on God to do exactly what God has promised he will do. So God is exalted when he himself is manifestly faithful and true to his own word. And that, that's the theme. That's the theme of Zechariah's song. Verse 68 again. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. Verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. That's a, it's a promise fulfilled. That we should be saved. Verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers. And to remember His holy covenant, that that oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Faith that glorifies God is faith that expresses assurance, dependence, reliance upon God to do what he has spoken, what he has promised, what he has sworn by a holy covenant to do. Listen, the the entire message of God in, in the Bible can be summed up in two words. Trust me. Trust me. 
God never calls us to blind faith. He never commands us to just, just believe. Just believe. Just, just believe harder. Rather, God calls us to entrust ourselves to what he has said, to what he has promised he will do. That's why in Romans chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, Paul, referring to Abraham, says, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. There's God-glorifying faith, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And so, the window that Luke opens for us into Zechariah's faith journey, it, it culminates in Zechariah taking God at his word with this, this remarkable assurance that the Lord God of Israel has visited and has redeemed his people. Now there's, there's one more striking thing about this song and I, I believe that it is meant to be instructive in the way that God glorifying faith functions, how it operates, namely how it transforms us. So clearly the coming of Jesus as the Messiah is understood here as a visitation from God, a visitation of God become man. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. That's, that's the coming of Christ. But notice the, that the accent of the song is on what, what God does when he visits. Notice this. Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now that, that term, horn of salvation, you know, that's, that's a, that's a military term, you know, it's a trumpet call to muster the troops. And, and, and what is Messiah's mustering going to do? According to verse 71, it is by this horn of salvation that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. So for centuries, the, the Jewish people had languished under the, this conviction that God had withdrawn his presence and his favor, withdrawn his power, the, the spirit of prophecy had ceased. There hadn't been a a prophetic words for 400 years um, since the prophet Malachi. Israel had, had since fallen into the hands of Rome, and only the most devout in Israel still had any hope, still waited, still looked for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so it's, it's a stunning moment. It's a stunning moment when verse 67, it says, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. Spirit-empowered speech, boom, first time in 400 years 
a prophetic word from God, the long-awaited visitation from the Lord. It's about to happen. But there's something perplexing. God would visit his people now, just, just not the way anybody expected. That they anticipated this warrior king tooting on that horn of salvation that and he'd come and he'd conquer their enemies and instead Jesus would come first not as a warrior king but as a humble king a sacrificial lamb to be slain for the forgiveness of their sins and listen that's, it. That's precisely how the saving work of Christ functions in our lives. First, listen carefully, first comes the cancellation of sin through faith in Jesus' death. And then comes the conquering of sin through reliance upon Jesus' blood-bought power. This is much more personally and practically significant than at first it may seem. You see, if we try to conquer our sin before it is canceled, then we attempt to become our own saviors and we vainly attempt to nullify God's justification of the ungodly. And and that... That is like the fast track to despair because it's impossible. It's impossible. Prior to his conversion, my father, he would would respond to my pleadings with him to trust Christ by saying things like, well, I tried that. I tried that. It didn't work. Didn't work? What didn't work? God didn't make things better? God didn't do what you wanted him to do? God didn't change you? It wasn't until his later years that the light went on and his heart came alive and he trusted Christ for forgiveness of sins. He trusted Christ for forgiveness of sins and joined to Jesus. Then then one of his favorite promises was, I can do all things that God commands me to do through Christ who lives in me and strengthens me. I believe that Luke has crafted his narrative in a precise and intentional way. We are meant to see Zechariah's fight of faith. We're meant to see Zechariah's unbelief against the backdrop of Mary's happy humility. And Zechariah is made mute because of his unbelief. And as he is made mute by his unbelief, his own wife commends Mary with this in Luke chapter 1, verse 45. Blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. One of my personal besetting sins is a, 
I just describe it as a, as a persistent and reflexive desire to feel good about myself. And I say reflex because there, there's no premeditation in it. I don't think about wanting to act in self-reliant, self-exalting, self-centered, self-righteous ways. I just do. I do it by nature, according to my sinful nature. And if this, if this, if this self-centered devotion is crossed, well, there are days when, if the devil's sitting on my face, I, I will feel offended, I will... I will oftentimes savor some self-pity, or perhaps I will deflect blame to others. And, and when it's at its worst, it, it will spiral downward to discouragement or self-loathing. And so you see, I, I, I'm, I'm able to locate myself much more easily in Zechariah's unbelief than locating myself in Mary's humility. And I'm pretty sure it's not just a gender thing. Got to be specific about this now. I, I, because I know just as many grasping, controlling, angry, sullen, self-reliant women as I do men. But, but here's how I'm helped by Jesus, the sin-canceling Messiah first, and then the sin-conquering Messiah second. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. You see, the, the, the death Christ died to cancel my sin, joined to Christ through faith, I died as well. And the life that I now live, Christ lives in me. And therefore, in God's eyes, my sins are gone. Christ's sin-atoning death and sin-conquering life are mine. And so when Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I recognize that. I recognize that as God, God views me in Christ. He no longer sees me as this grasping, immature, insecure fool. But rather he sees me clothed in Jesus' infinite condescension. Jesus' humility the kind of humility that God loves is, through faith, credited to me. God sees me as humble as Jesus. My selfish pride is a canceled sin. And the only sin, 
The only sin that we can fight, loved ones, the only sin that we can fight and conquer for the glory of Jesus according to the life that he lives in us is forgiven sins, canceled sins. And so the connection between the cross and the conquered sin in my life is the Holy Spirit, is my Holy Spirit-empowered will. And that empowering by the Spirit, it is blood-bought. Loved ones, Jesus is a sin-canceling sacrifice. And then, and then, a enemy-conquering king. Trust him. Trust him alone for the forgiveness of your sins and for the fulfillment of every promise that God has made, including the promise of eternal life. And then trusting in his blood-bought power to conquer sin, fight against it. Fight against that remaining sin in your life. It is the mystery of God become man. This is a gospel blessing that I trust will engender fresh hope in you today. And may it make you want to sing. So let's pray. I believe your invitation to us, Lord, today is to come to you. And your invitation is directed to those who are full of faith and those who are weak in faith those who are strong in faith, and those who are unstable in their faith. Those who are waiting and those who've given up waiting. Those who are praying and those who are just going through the motions. Those who are alive and hopeful and those who are broken and bitter. Those with great resolve and those who are afraid to even speak of their anxieties. Christ is born. That's the announcement. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior, a Lamb slain for the pardon for our sins. And a King who empowers us to walk by faith. We turn to you now. We're trusting you, Lord. Be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.